received on Fraudish, you know how much I like academics. Well, today we have Dr. Steve Mintz, AKA the Ethics Sage. His most recent LinkedIn post was the tired quote, those who can do, those who can't teach. That was by George Bernard Shaw in 1905. I put it in the show notes and he has a very interesting take on it. We also talked Gen Z and whistleblowing, garbage in, garbage out, kind of like last in, first out, LIFO, or first in, first out, FIFO. It's another awesome episode, and I think you will agree. So let's get going. Okay, everyone. I am very excited today because we have Dr. Steve Mintz, and you guys know how much I love academia. Um, and uh, because I also believe that Steve is, or Dr. Mintz, is working really hard to um Kind of, I'm going to say bridge business and ethics, which some people say is an oxymoron, but people like you are making it not an oxymoron. So um, we are going to start with a lightning round and then you can give your sort of elevator speech. And then we have to talk about your LinkedIn post for today because, oh, I loved it. So we'll get into that. But first off, our lightning round. Um, When you hear the word fraud, what do you think of? Well, given my background, which is in accounting and financial statements, I think of financial statement fraud. Okay. And this one's going to be an easy one for you. Ethics. Well, uh, I like to say knowing the difference between right and wrong. And also, I have an expression that I try to live my life by and teach students, which is even though you might have a right to do something, that doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. So I always think about that, especially when I have an ethical dilemma. Oh, oh, we are going to go deep. This is so good. And um, so I got this from the ethics expert. You said, and I took a note while I was out on my walking, I think it's easier said than done. Mm-hmm. And I love that. Right. Right. Because most people want to do the right thing. But there's a lot of pressures on them to not do that. Certainly in business, there's financial fraud occurs in large part because there's pressure on people who might have access to the financial statements and manipulate them. Um, You know, they're basically good people who happen to do something wrong because of the pressure, fear of retaliation, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last one, it's not so much of a speed round, but since COVID, what is the best money you have spent personally or professionally? The best money? Yes. (laughs) Putting everything into treasury securities and getting it out of the stock market because it was driving me crazy. (laughs) Oh, I like that. I just did something where um, like laddering treasuries and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm an old person. I'm laddering treasuries. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so Steve, tell us your sort of background. We know you as the ethics sage. Mm -hmm. Well, I started off my uh, professional career in public accounting. I worked for one of the larger firms for a few years in a smaller firm as well. I had about six years of public accounting experience, but I always thought that I'd be a good teacher. I was one of these students who would sit in a classroom and criticize the teacher and say, you know, I could do a better job. So after six years of public accounting, I felt like I wanted more interaction with young people. 
to hopefully make a difference in their life. So I did. I started teaching a um, few different places. Uh, the City University of New York was my first teaching job. And I met somebody who was very influential in my life who said, Steve, if you want to make this a career, go get a doctoral degree. I had never thought of that before because I always thought if you had an MBA and a CPA, which is what I had, it was enough because the teachers I had pretty much those were their credentials. But things were changing in academia, even for business and accounting professors that PhDs were needed. Research was required. So I got my PhD at George Washington University. And then I started my uh, career and I've been teaching in many, many different universities. But it's been a it's been a labor of love um, to be able to influence young people. And, um, you know, I, I don't think I would want to do anything else with my life, quite frankly. Yeah, that's um, I as a young girl, I wanted to marry a college professor and yeah. I ended up marrying a college professor. So we didn't yeah. have a white picket fence, but um, <laughs> just because I love learning and the fraudish audience, it's lifelong learners for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I alluded to the post uh, earlier is you did a LinkedIn post today about those who can do and those who can't teach. And that was by, I didn't remember the year, George Bernard Shaw in 1905 in a play of his. And talk about what made you do this post, because it's excellent. And I will have it in the show notes, guys. Well, uh, I did the post because... I write some blogs under the name Ethics Sage. I write uh, one that's sort of general under Ethics Sage, workplace ethics blog. And I had posted a blog on workplace ethics about ethics in the workplace. And I get comments back on a lot of my blogs. And somebody said, because they know I've been teaching for 30 plus years, they said that. They said, those who can do, those who can't teach. And, you know, you get these trolling type comments if you do these things long enough. So I started to think about it. This was a few weeks ago. And I said, you know, this is just not right. It's uh, misleading. It's disparaging. I've known a lot of people during my life who, who are professors who are very thoughtful individuals um, who really have a desire to change the world in their little part of it through education. So I've been thinking about this blog that I posted today for quite a few weeks, and maybe it was because I knew I was going to be on with you today. I said, well, let me get it done. Maybe it'll come up. It's a good topic to talk about. I right away had several comments on LinkedIn, um, admittedly, mostly from professors who were very happy with it and thanks for writing this and that sort of thing. But most people who are professors, especially in my field, which is business and accounting, they've had a professional life. Sure, they might go straight from graduate school to getting a doctoral degree to teaching, but most of us have worked in the quote unquote real world. We know what it's about. Maybe we liked it, maybe we didn't, but for whatever reason, we wanted to go into academia. So I wanted to put down my thoughts about it with the hopes that it'll dispel some of these false ideas about teachers. I also mentioned in the blog, even though the blog was generally designed for college professors, I did talk a little bit about 
uh, teachers in secondary schools. You know, I can't imagine the motivation these days to teach in um, K through 12, given what's going on with the violence in the school and um, mental health issues. And it's, it's, it's scary. And for teachers to devote their life to doing that, I give them a great deal of credit. They're not doing it for the money. They're doing it to make a difference in the world. And that's their way of doing that. So I just wanted to hopefully influence some people and get them to think a little bit more carefully about really what the job is of an educator. Oh, yeah. You just hit on so many points because my husband was a professor of education. He was an educational psychologist. And um, but he also taught in secondary schools before he went and he got his Ph.D. And his advisor really only took people who had actually been out in the schools because he's like the same thing. He's like, I want you to have had real life experience like you had it, you know, big four accounting firms. Um, And he thought it was important. And I teach now, not, you know, in a college or anything, but like, I feel it's the most impactful work that I've done because it's not whack-a-mole. It's not like one tax return or one financial statement. You're teaching hundreds of people at a time and you're like influencing and affecting so many more people than I call it the whack-a-mole investigation game. Right. And you're hoping that if you can influence them positively, they'll influence people they interact with. It'll hopefully change their their character in a positive way, or at least get them to stop and think about what they're going to do before they do it. What are the possible consequences? Who might it help? Who might it harm? So it's it's even more so than affecting the one individual or group of individual class that goes beyond that. At least that's the hope. Well, and I love, and this isn't a spoiler alert because I know the audience will go and read it, but I like this. I leave you with a quote from Aristotle. Those who know do. Those that understand teach. Mm-hmm. I think that is just brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm a big Aristotle fan. Um, When I I actually wrote a book for commercial market, after I I retired from teaching, I like to say I'm actively retired. When I retired from teaching, I continued to do my research and writing. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to try writing a book on ethics for a commercial market. That was quite a challenge, I must tell you, when you used to academia and dozens of footnotes and things of that nature. So I did that. And um, uh, I always study the the philosophers. Uh, Aristotle, of course, he's well known for virtue ethics, which always appealed to me because his approach to ethics was to develop the traits of character that make an individual not only ethical, but also in the long run will make them happy because they are doing the right thing and establishing a good reputation. So I've written research papers on Aristotle. He's a main part of an accounting ethics textbook I have that's used in colleges and this commercial book. So I just love his quotes. Whenever I can find one, I use it. So do you get this question a lot? Are we, is the next or the younger generation more ethical than we are or not? 
It's a good question. And I, I don't think there's a, an answer to that. I think they're more attuned to social causes, uh, perhaps call it social entrepreneurship, if you like. But making a difference in the world that way, whether it's through environmental consciousness, social justice, I think they're much more attuned to that than any other generation. Whether that equates to being more ethical, I don't know. It was interesting. I read a study the other day that they were looking at different generations. And the study said that those who are in Gen Z, they are more likely or they they want to blow the whistle on wrongdoing more than any other generation. They did a research study, but they actually don't blow the whistle more than millennials or baby boomers. They want to do it, but they don't do it. You know, it seems almost like it didn't make any sense. How can you explain that? So I studied it. And it's basically the fear of retaliation is a good part of it, because we've seen so much of that in business. And I know that when I teach uh, my ethics class, I think I mentioned in the blog today, I'm teaching an online course on ethics for Fordham University. And we were talking about this last night. Some of the people who blew the whistle, I actually had a speaker, Cynthia Cooper, who most people know as the WorldCom whistleblower. And she was just telling how difficult it was, the fear of retaliation, not only for her, but a lot of people she worked for. And a lot of them did not do the right thing because they were afraid they'd lose their job. They wouldn't be able to support their family and so on. So I think young people are very attuned to ethical issues. I'm not sure that they have the commitment to follow through knowing what the right thing to do is and actually doing it, which are two two different things, clearly. Well, I teach some college classes for, you know, colleagues of mine. They have me come in and I always give a little career advice. I also give extra credit. Um, But (laughs) my career advice is um, you always have to have a walk away fund. Because I haven't been asked to do anything because I've always had the appearance of having a walk away fund. I didn't have it in my 20s, but my boss thought I did um, for whatever reason. But you have to have it. Otherwise, if you don't even have the appearance, you will be asked to do something unethical, I believe. That's a great idea, by the way. Yeah, I think all college students should be told that. Absolutely. You don't want the fear of losing a job and not having money to survive to impact ethical decisions. Because more often than not, you're you're going to go along with the wrongdoing. You're not going to speak up or maybe even conduct the unethical act yourself because your boss tells you to. So that, that's then, a great idea. I like that. And then you conduct it and then they've got you. And it may be the first thing might be just very little. And I mean, face it, there is no perfect person out there. And this reminds me of the movie, um, The Informant with Russell Crowe. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he had some issues. Like a lot of whistleblowers have an issue or just the idea like, oh, well, I did that. Are they going to get rid of me for that? Um, so I just tell all young people, you got to have the walk away front fund because 
I had a coworker and she was asked to do stuff and I wasn't. And I'm certain it was because I, well, I was a little bit older, but also um, I think my boss knew that I'd just walk away and say no. And he knew she wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, what you said made me think of the thing I tell students more than anything else, which is to avoid the ethical slippery slope. Because once you take that first step down the ladder and you compromise your values, if you go along with fraud the first time, chances are you will continue to. Because if you don't, your employer can say, ah, you remember last year when you went along with this fraud? You don't want that to get out. So you're covering your tracks and, and one thing leads to another. It gets worse. Yeah. Yeah. So I am don't think I'm not paying attention. I'm looking at your blog and you guys, I'm going to have a link to the blog because you have like, first off, you're very consistent in your blog, which is important. But you have um, a lot of really interesting topics, I think. So the one I'm going to read. Uh, do dark triad personalities explain aggressive accounting? And um, I don't know Barry, but I know Sri. So do you want to talk about the dark triad a little bit? Well, it's people with psychological problems, uh, simply stated, that may lead them to do things that uh, ordinarily they wouldn't do or people would not do. Um, they may be uh, incredibly selfish, narcissistic behavior is one of those, you know, narcissism, it's all about me and me. And if you're going to commit fraud, what's a greater motivator than uh, the pursuit of your own interests and everybody else, you know, be damned. I don't care if it hurts other people within the organization. So it's a psychopathy, I think, is what Shri and Barry said. I haven't read the book in a while. But yeah, um, I think they're right on and they've really made and an effect, an imprint on a lot of people within the accounting field that I know. Just a new uh, novel way of looking at why things go wrong within organizations. Well, which then leads me to a comparison of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos and the newest SBF and FTX. Do you have any sort of comparisons or things that stick out that like you're like, oh, no, these are totally different? Well, I think Elizabeth Holmes is totally different and what happened there. I can't imagine too many people doing, wanting to do, and or getting away with, you know, we call it uh, fake it until you make it, basically is the expression there. And it's just astounding when you think about it to sell so many reputable pharmacies and other groups, government agencies that a single fingerprint can you can get enough blood out of a single finger prick that you can run it through the machine and get all the blood tests that normally you have to have a needle in your vein. And people bought into this. Um, and of course, uh, probably it was just confidence that the public had in her. I think what helped her a lot was uh, very reputable people on the board of directors who were pushing the product. Um so I don't know if it's equated to uh, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Um, I suppose to some extent they were faking it with respect to liquidity and risk issues. And uh, the thing about what happened in the bank, having an accounting background, 
And first, you could say, where were the accountants in Theranos to really dig into what this product did or didn't do? Uh, did they really check? Because there were people within the organization blowing the whistle. Now, I, I, I think uh, Tyler Schultz, who was the grandson of George Schultz, who was Secretary of State, I believe it was under um, um, the second Bush, if I remember correctly, uh, he blew the whistle. I don't know if there was a whistleblower in Silicon Valley or Signature Bank. Maybe there was. And sometimes these things don't come out right away. But as an accountant, as a CPA and my background, the thing that really shocked me was the auditors in this case. Less than 14 days. I think they gave their audit opinion less than 14 days before the story broke that basically the banks were illiquid. And they were making very risky investments. So there is a relationship certainly there with respect to fraud and pulling the wall over a lot of people's eyes, which they did. Um, But I almost put uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos in a separate category. It's just so bizarre. Well, her dad did work at Enron. So, you know, I didn't know. Interesting. (laughs) And she also said when she was eight, she wanted to be a billionaire. Oh, I think I'd slap my children if they said that. Yeah, yeah. At that, yeah, at that age, <laughs> you got to be careful about that if they're going to say that at that young age. Well, well, she well, with- she had her, she got her wish, and long it wasn't very long lived, but she got her wish. What do you think about then? And I don't know if it goes back, but Adam Newman and WeWork. <laughs> Yeah, I watched, uh, I forget, was Netflix or, or Apple TV. I watched that show and I kept shaking my head. What's going on here? Again, I, there's certainly more similarity between him and Elizabeth Holmes because they both were fake it until you make it with respect to the office space and, and how businesses were set up and how he sold everybody on it. And really nothing much was going on within the organization. So I think it's very similar. Greed probably drove Adam Newman, just like it drove Elizabeth Holmes. And they had a personality that drew people to them. And I think that's part of it, having a personality where people want to believe that what you're saying is true. So there's a lot of similarity there. Well, and Andreessen Horowitz, the, what is it, A to Z investment, just gave Adam Newman another 350 million for his new thing called flow. I think it is. And it's like, I don't believe in victim shaming or victim blaming, but I do in Theranos and I will in Andreessen Horowitz when it goes South. Yeah. Yeah. That's strange that they would give him so much money, but. Yeah. (laughs) Hard to account for some of the things that happen. You you hit on this just briefly. So SVB and the audit opinion. And we know that I think I can't remember which firm just got like not kicked out of Germany for doing the wire card scandal. What do you think of the big four firms? Yeah, might as well name it. It's public knowledge. It was Ernst and Young with Wirecard, KPMG with Signature Bank. Mike, we could have a whole show on this. Some of the things that the audit firms, I don't believe your your listeners would even believe some of these things. But for example, 
Um, I think it was both KPMG, Ernst & Young, and maybe even PricewaterhouseCoopers to a lesser extent. It was actually discovered that these firms were providing answers to internal training exams for continuing education credit to their staff. They would share questions. They'd share answers. And these, these were ethics training courses. In order to get credit for these courses, you have to pass an exam at the end. And you could take it online. So having the professional staff now, the higher-ups, provide these answers to questions on an ethics training exam, two or three of these firms was unbelievable. And you had a situation where um, audit firms are inspected every year by the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board. So they sort of audit the auditors. And KPMG, uh, quite a few years, well, not that long ago, but they were getting terrible inspection reports. So the PCAOB, in some cases, would find 40% plus deficient audits. They were always at the high end. So at one point, they hired former staffers of PCAOB to join their firm with the hopes they'd give them inside information about which of the audit, audit clients would be inspected. Because you don't know who they're going to expect. They come in and say, we're inspecting XYZ company. But they had hoped that these former staffers would give them that inside information. So just the, the kinds of things, it's not just going along with the client's desire to commit financial fraud. It just goes so deep that a profession that's supposed to be so ethical, you have to shake your head at some of the things that are happening and wonder you know, what's gone wrong here. And there are a lot of reasons of the whole culture of the accounting profession changed. Probably it changed once the firms became uh, embedded with uh, con consulting and advisory services. Once they started doing more of that than auditing, the whole culture changed because you don't have to be a CPA to do advisory or consulting services. So you're not schooled in the ethics that I was schooled in as the CPA, as auditors are. So there's this clash of cultures, you know, consultants in it and management advisory service people want to be more commercial. Auditors, you know, their mantra is to protect the public interest. So I think the firm's level of ethics have gone down steadily since then. Okay, so this is interesting because I was listening to you on the podcast Ethics Expert, and, you know, you're talking about accountants and ethics. And one of the other industries is attorneys in ethics. Mm. Now, like, I just, I think that, um, and you wrote also in on your blog about um, uh, the, uh, what is it, Edelman Trust Barometer and the Gallup Poll. Mm -hmm. I, I think that accountants have always been higher than attorneys. Right. But, like, my husband had a friend who failed the ethics portion of the bar exam and, you know, he retook it and he's uber successful. I don't even think of attorneys in ethics yeah. anywhere close to accountants in ethics. Right. No, I agree with you. And when you look at what is the ultimate responsibility 
um, of a CPA compared to a lawyer. The CPA, the ultimate responsibility is not to the client. It's to the public interest, at least auditors, because you're trying to make sure the financial statements are accurate and reliable because uh, shareholders depend on this. Creditors depend on this. So it's not your client that you're, you're primarily representing. It's the public interest. Lawyers, it's the client. You defend the client no matter what. Doesn't matter what the client did. They have a right to an aggressive defense, the best defense possible. So the whole idea of who do you represent, I think, is is behind the foundation of why there is that difference in ethics. Oh, I like that. And then I was doing a presentation for a group of accountants and um, I came across and I think I came across it from. Um, oh, Max Bazerman was the chief justice. Warren Berger in 1984 said the auditor's ultimate responsibility is the public. And I wasn't aware of that. I'm not an auditor, but, um, you know, I've worked with auditors and I was like, wow, that's that's a pretty big deal to say that. Yeah, I think uh, we now call it, uh, you're right, what we call it in the textbooks and in discussing it with students is it's a public watchdog function. So auditors have a public watchdog function. In a sense, they're the gatekeepers, you know, the keepers of the Holy Grail, which are the financial statements and the books and records and uh, files that back that all up. And if, if, if they don't, protect the public, no one will, because first of all, it's very difficult to understand all these things. The general public is not going to be able to take a set of financial statements, really understand them, especially when you have 30 pages of footnotes to the financial statements. So you depend on these uh, experts to really protect your investment. Should I invest? Should I not invest? Should I make the loan? Should I not make the loan? One of the first things I'm going to look at is the financial statements. There's more than that. But that's a critical part of it. So you're on Twitter. And um, do you follow Francine McKenna? I, I do. I've, um, I was on a panel with her last year, the American Accounting Association. I know that she has, uh, what is it called? The Dig, I believe, yeah. is, is her blog. And I will read it from time to time. Uh, a lot of her, her blogs are quite lengthy. So <laughs> I have to have some time to read it and understand it and digest it. But I have a lot of respect for what she's done. She's now uh, a teaching at American University in D.C. So she she branched out from her investigative journalist um, profession into teaching, which is good. She undoubtedly has a lot to offer. Yeah. Do, oh, do I you love know her. her. Have you met her or she's been on the podcast and yeah. she introduced me to Bedrock AI on um, Twitter. And oh, they're so, you know, they go, uh, they use artificial intelligence, which we're going to talk about in a second because you blog about it. Mm -hmm. um, but they're one of the ones that follow, you know, firms and the footnotes and whether they're late and, you know, material misstatements and all that. So she got me turned on to Bedrock AI, which leads us to AI. And you've been posting about it. Talk to me what you think about audit, um, accounting and AI. Yeah, uh, AI in general, because so much depends on how the information is fed into the system. The, the people who, who set it up could be biased one way or the other. 
um, you know, let's say you're doing real estate loans and the information says certain areas of the city, you don't want to uh, provide a mortgage loan because people are not good risks. That's going to bias the whole program. So I think that's you know, in accounting, we have an expression garbage in, garbage out. Um, you know, we have FIFO, LIFO and GIGO, I guess you would say with that. But yeah, you have to I'm I'm skeptical of it. I'm skeptical of of any type of program that people put together because who knows who's doing it? Who knows what their biases are? Um, over time, I'm sure it'll get better and better. But right now I have my doubts. And an auditing, I'd hate to have audits depend on AI when you don't have an individual thinking using judgment. Uh, you can't factor everything into an AI program, I don't think. Well, because I did a presentation a couple of weeks ago, and um, I asked if I asked ChatGPT if Elizabeth Holmes was a white collar criminal, and um, they said, "Wait, they, they they had that she was because it ended in 2021. You know, that's when ChatGPT. Now the newer stuff is." you know, newer, but they said that she, after she was indicted, she was a criminal, a white collar criminal. And I was like, oh no, 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 we can indict a ham sandwich. Yeah. And um, an indictment does not equate to a conviction. So like right there, like, and I put it up in my PowerPoint because I was like, look at what chat GPT is saying about Elizabeth Holmes. And this is, you know, she's a convicted white collar criminal and it's like no that it wasn't there yeah so well that's a good example of what you have to be very careful um chat gpt is is making the rounds of academia now everybody's concerned our students will use it uh so we have to catch up with the technology in that respect to have some sort of uh um what is what they can do, what they can't do? How can we monitor it? Because they'll wind up getting papers from chat GPT. Write me a paper on Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And there you have it. So yeah. And the lack of footnoting and where they yeah. got the, you know, the source from, even though the new paid version, apparently um, the first version got a 10 percent score on the bar. And the paid version got a 90%. So I oh, think that's good. worth $20 a month. <laughs> I suppose, yeah. I think that's worth $20 a month. <laughs> um, so in your online ethics class, how do you think the online version has gone compared to the in-person version? Well, the first thing, this is the first time I've taught online. So there's a very steep learning curve. And I found that out the hard way. You know, the equipment can go down. Just last night, for example, we had an Internet outage and it occurred maybe two, three hours before class. And I'm going crazy because Cynthia Cooper is the speaker. And will I be able to get on? Will I be able to host it? And, and what wound up happening is I had a, another professor start the session. And then I uh, within a half an hour, I had access but the time and effort you have to put into putting the material together so you can post it in a way that it's useful to the students is incredible. Now, it's it's probably a one time investment uh, in time or at least to some extent. But 
you know, I've never liked uh, teaching online for ethics. You really have to face the students, you know, you have to interact with them. Um, I found that they're somewhat reluctant to even speak up in online programs. Thank goodness for the chat function, because they'll do that more than they'll raise their hand and speak up or uh, do something like that. I don't think you can learn as much, certainly not in ethics online as you can in a class where students can debate issues. It flows much better. So I, I can't speak for every uh, area of academia, but as far as I'm concerned, it's just not a good way to teach ethics. We do it. I, I think I'm getting across to them. Uh, I, I think what happens is, uh, at least in my case, there's more pressure on them to do things than maybe ordinarily, because I find it's more difficult to get through the same volume of material online than in person, because I don't know what they're understanding and what they're not understanding. So I may be going over things that I really don't have to. In a classroom, I could look at their faces, see how many people are sleeping, you know, and have an idea as to, well, I better go over this or do this or do that. Uh, but it, it's a challenge. And, um, you know, I've welcomed it. And the best thing has been the guest speakers before. I don't know if you've had him on your program, but before Cynthia had Tony Menendez, who is a whistleblower at Halliburton. Tony's a great guest to have as well. He had a 10-year ordeal uh, trying to clear his name because he blew the whistle on fraud at Halliburton. And unlike in Cynthia's case, where she was very successful in getting the word out and so on, uh, Tony was met with resistance at every step of the way from the company, even went to the SEC and they wouldn't back him. And he spent 10 years of his time and money just to clear his name to prove he was retaliated against because he was given a different uh, position within the firm. People avoided him like the plague. So he's another good speaker. And I've had them both on. And that's that really makes the online classes, I think, better for students. They really like hearing them. And it helps me out a lot in teaching the material. Yeah, people don't um, think, I mean, we have optimism bias. We think that, you know, okay, good things might happen to us, but bad things will never happen to us. And so they don't understand that when someone like Tony or Cynthia comes forward, but more specifically Tony, it takes so long that people think, well, he must have not done something quite so right. And we like to blame the victim. Yeah, yeah. Until it happens to someone and then they understand how it works. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that was Cynthia was talking about, I guess the best way to express it is why do good people sometimes do bad things, which I always like to talk to students about, because in, in WorldCom, for example, and Cynthia spoke about this last night, there were a lot of accountants in um, WorldCom that were just good, regular people. You'd never expect them to be involved in fraud, but they were pressured. Their job was on the line. They needed the money to live. So it's the pressure that occurs within an organization where you fear for your position uh, and the money that you need to live that sometimes lead people astray. And it's uh, it's 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 a lesson learned for students to hear someone talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've heard you on podcasts. So do you like podcasts? 
I do. I think uh, the interaction such as what we're doing is the best thing about that. And that's what make them makes podcasts successful in my mind as we're doing. So I do like it um, better than, you know, just me speaking and saying things, uh, um, which is fine. That's another way of doing it. So, yeah, I do. I I've done a few. Um, they're increasing recently, maybe because of ethics experts and what you're doing, uh, which is fine. I enjoy them. You get, get my my name out there, the work that I do and so on. Well, and do you do you think they're helpful for your students? Do you suggest podcasts to your students? Um, you know, I haven't done that. I haven't done that in general. I, I probably in general, if I were to look at the ethics experts or your podcast, uh, I need to spend the time to obviously listen to them myself to to ask them to to listen to those folks with respect to myself i figure you know they hear me enough uh, to say to them go listen to me on a podcast after i've been talking for 3 hours in one night session i usually don't do that i'm always a little i don't know skeptical about tooting my horn for lack of a better expression uh too much i don't want to seem that way to them i want to seem like an ordinary person um, so um that's, that's well, just my thing <laughs> I teach a class on fraud and pop culture. So I do movies, books, TV shows, mm. and you obviously had watched WeWork. Is there, and Francine McKenna also, like she brings in music to her classes to get the students all pumped up and everything like that. Are there any movies or TV shows that you recommend personally or professionally? There's one that uh, I do recommend more than any other. There are a lot, but it's uh, it's on Netflix, uh, Bernie Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street, I believe is the name of it. So okay. it's all about uh, Madoff's Ponzi scheme. And I think there are so many lessons. I mean, here was an individual who was so respected by the business financial community, the chair of NASDAQ Stock Exchange, um, a, a, a major player within the community, gave a lot of money to charity, uh, and how does it go all wrong? How does someone like this commit a, I think it was something like a $64 billion Ponzi scheme? Unbelievable. And that Netflix series, I think it's five segments. I'm going from memory, maybe four, really tells the story about how this happened. And, you know, I, I like to say it takes a long time to build a reputation for trust but not very long to destroy it. Bernie Madoff's a great example. You know, we could go to uh, people like Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby. If you're a sports enthusiast, Lance Armstrong with the Tour de France. It's very important to students to realize that one mistake uh, could, you could just kill it for you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that a lot of people like to get I mean, like the History Channel is popular. It's because people like to hear it that way. And I think Hollywood's done a good job with, you know, making movies and documentaries and TV shows about fraud because everyone loves fraud. Yeah. So as we close out, what's one thing that I haven't asked you or a couple of things I haven't asked you that you're like, I want to get out to the fraudish audience? <laughs> good question. Um, well, 
one thing I like to to say to students, there's a concept known as cognitive dissonance. And basically that says the way you think you should behave as an ethical person, the way you think you should behave is not the way you do behave. There's a dissonance disconnect between those two. And then explain to them why that is the case. We've been talking a lot about that, the pressure. But one of the things I I always teach, and I'm sure your listeners know very much about it, is the Freud triangle. That is so instructive where there are three elements to fraud, according to the triangle, starting with um, pressures. It's not necessarily pressures within an organization to do the wrong thing, but it could be financial pressures. And there's studies done by, uh, I know you're familiar with it, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners that say um, living beyond one's means, for example, is one of the major reasons fraud occurs. Because all of a sudden, top management is spending all this money personally and they, you know, they, they they can't catch up. They start using corporate funds to cover them. And then, of course, the 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 opportunity you have to have access to the financial statements or if you're going to misappropriate assets in order to commit the fraud and then rationalizations. Uh, one thing that normally I'm not asked about on podcasts is uh, there's this relatively new ethics teaching technique. It's called giving voice to values. Oh, I love her. You love Mary her. Gentile. Margaret Gentile. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and she says that there are uh rationalizations for why people do the wrong thing. And she'll say, for example, uh your superior says, look, you don't like it. This is standard operating practice here. This is the way we do it. You gotta be a team player. You don't like it, you can leave. Or they'll say, this is a very immaterial transaction, nothing to worry about. Or they'll say, look, you're not going to be the one to ultimately pass judgment on these financial items. We're asking you to make an entry or go along with an entry. Yes, it's wrong, but you don't have a locus of responsibility. And then, of course, the loyalty card. You have to be a loyal employee. So giving voice to values, which, of course, is much more comprehensive than we we just discussed, is something that I always try to get across because I find it a great teaching tool to say to students, we're trying to teach you how to stand up for your values and do what the right thing is. And here's a technique you can follow. And having that walk away fund. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Steve, I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast and a big shout out, of course, to ethics expert, which experts, which I will put in the notes too to go and listen to that one. Um, This has been delightful. And even though it's fraud at the base of fraud is ethics or the lack of ethics. So, yeah, thank you you so, so much. Thank you for inviting me. so incredibly lucky to have such amazing guests on Fraudish, and I hope that you appreciate who I pick on Fraudish. From academics, felons, OSINT experts, victims, fraudsters, you get it all here on Fraudish. So thank you again for your time, and if you are so inclined, I would love a review because that's how we spread the word. Have a great week.